It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. Professional sports have undergone a true data revolution over the last two decades. Today, all major sports teams, regardless of sports code, are using analytics and data science to drive team performance, optimize game outcomes, and scout young talent. So why has analytics become so popular in sports, and how does it help drive a competitive edge? To answer these questions and many more relating to sports analytics, I recently spoke to Ari Kaplan. Ari has spent more than three decades using analytics to measure and understand human ability, scout future superstars, and win professional sports titles. He is known as the real Moneyball guy because of his work in baseball and his involvement in making the Hollywood classic Moneyball. Today, Ari is global AI evangelist at Data Robot. Listen to this episode of Leaders of Analytics to learn how Ari became the real Moneyball guy, the analytics the Chicago Cubs used to break a 108-year drought by winning the World Series in 2016, the evolution of analytics and data science in sports, what the business world can learn from sports in terms of using analytics to gain a competitive edge, where sports analytics is going in the future, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Ari. Ari Kaplan, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It is so good to have you on the show. And you and I, we met probably two or three months ago in person. And since then, we've been dying to get this recording done because there is so much to talk about in this world of analytics and sports that we're going to talk about today. Welcome to the show and really happy to have you here today. Yeah, and so nice to be here. It was great to have met you. Going to Melbourne, I hadn't been there in like 25 years. And there was so much funness. I was there with uh, Data Robot and McLaren for the Grand Prix. Uh, Daniel Ricardo, one of the drivers, that's kind of his home country. But from there, there was a lot going on in terms of analytics, data science. There, there's a nice conference. It was a pleasure to meet you there. I also wanted to thank everyone who's listening to the podcast. Appreciate your time. Brilliant. Thank you for those kind words, Ari. We are in love with our city here in Melbourne, and I'm glad you got to go to the Grand Prix because that is a really special event and time of the year in the city. So let's get to you, Ari. Could you tell us a bit about yourself, your career background, and what you do? Sure. So I've had the privilege to work in what you might call now artificial intelligence, but really everything data, data analytics for 34 years. The last three plus I've been at Data Robot, which is really fascinating. My role is global AI evangelist. So talking around the world with different companies of what they're doing, what their challenges are, what the potential is. Also host my own podcast, which is kind of futuristic looking. So I just love talking to different people. I, I went to Caltech 
which is the California Institute of Technology. They made that TV show Big Bang Theory based on it. But uh, you know, speaking of, of geeks and in a good way. Are you one of the original guys from the show, are you? <laughs> it seems like uncannily all my friends were portrayed in the show. I think it's just a coincidence, but you have the spectrum of personalities, but I feel like that was a lot of my life, but super fun. There's another movie, Real Genius with Val Kilmer. If you haven't seen it, huge inspiration in my life, but it's all about learning, but like pranks and being creative. So like three in the morning, people are teaching you to count cards or pick a lock in a safe or superconducting heterodyne detectors, you know, all sorts of fun stuff. They run Jet Propulsion Lab, which just this week, not fully JPL, but the Webb Telescope coming out with like, look into the distant past of galaxies. So all the time humanity is learning about the universe. And I try to learn something new every day myself still. Yeah, good on you. Very fascinating. And a long career in data science or analytics, 34 years before it was even a discipline, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. so I just started with the data robot last three years. That's kind of what I've been doing. But most of my career has been in, in sports analytics. So at Caltech, um, I came up with better ways to evaluate player performance, like sports player performance, realizing that some of it could be luck. Some of it, the numbers are ascribed to how others perform and not how the individual performs. And instead of just complaining about it that everyone did, came up with my own system. So to this day, anytime you see the letter X for expected, like expected goals or expected wins, it's kind of the paradigm I set. But then, yeah, just had to keep reinventing myself every three or four years. It's kind of another theme of my life is like once you're onto something that has value, a lot of people and companies either copy or duplicate or see the value and do it themselves. And you could stay with that and have like a steady life. But my personality is I don't like being in the space that is kind of mature. I like being in practical, but what's the next thing? So that's one thing I had to reinvent myself every few years. And now in sports, really in, in every industry, but certainly in sports, it's uh, how do you progress using artificial intelligence to complement what humans are doing on the field, off the field. So that, that's kind of been my progression. I also spent time with Oracle Corporation and was president of the Worldwide Oracle User Group and dabbled uh, in entrepreneurism and started some companies that got Series A and Series B and one of the first mobile business software companies before the iPhone existed, which was pretty fun. But yeah, it all kind of had that central theme back to sports and sports analytics. Yeah, and doing the research on your background, Ari, for this podcast, I can tell you it was very fascinating. And there's so many different directions we could go in because you have done so many things. We have only about an hour to do this, though. So we, uh, we won't be going through every 34 years of your career. But let's dive into the sports analytics, because that is really fascinating and a bit of a, an unknown thing to many people, but actually sits underneath. The first question I have for you is, you're sort of known as uh, the real Moneyball guy. And the Moneyball is a book and, and a movie with Brad Pitt and uh, Jonah Hill, if I'm not mistaken. In this case, you would be not Brad Pitt, but Jonah Hill, I assume, uh, <laughs> which is about baseball and how... Uh, one particular team used data to really go from bottom to top, smart way and in a, on a low budget. You are known as the real Moneyball guy. Could you tell us where that nickname comes from and what sits behind all of that? Sure. So yeah, the movie and the book Moneyball, I would say the book, the events, this is now the 20th anniversary. So first of all, I'm impressed and a little surprised at how long staying that book and that story is. Like you still see it on airplanes when, when I fly and people say, oh, it was on television the other night. So it's remarkable of all the tons of great movies that have been produced that seems to resonate. And it resonates people trying to change an old way of doing something, in this case, sports, and using data, using quote unquote smarts to try to improve. And then you know it's a combination of that and then cultural resistance to change, which really, I think everyone 
can relate to in one way or another. Sometimes when you try to be progressive or successful one way or another, there are people that are resistant to change. And it's been like that, like all the time, every single industry. One of my friends helped start the automated teller machine and he got a lot of resistance. You know, people want to go to the bank. They want to deal with humans. And he's like, at midnight, the banks are closed, you know, and then with mobile software, I would talk with public companies and they would tell me, Ari, we will never check our email from a mobile device. We'll always wait until we get home. And I'm like, you're going to be checking email, you know, while you're waiting in line at the grocery store. And they just couldn't believe it. And so that those are reasons why Moneyball kind of resonated. I uh, started out back in the 1980s, just as a teenager, doing like what you would call analytics. And from what I've been told, and people here otherwise, let me know, but I'm one of the first three people known to have been employed by any sports franchise to do you know, data analytics, to use data to do things like predicting how a player might perform, what players should they sign, how much money should they be valued, what are the strengths and habits and weaknesses of a player in the game. So that kind of was like the original Moneyball thought. And then the, the book was kind of based on like the Oakland A's. And there, there's this whole story of how the original person who was based on like had to be dropped out of the, the movie set. So the producer had heard of me and, you know, had contacted me to see what it's like to be an analyst slash data scientist in the world of sports. So I uh, no idea how that movie would change my life. It's still pretty wild having been in it. The people that are in the movie, the real life folks, like I've worked with in real life, and I just view it as kind of normal. It's almost like if your kid was in a movie and it's just like your normal life. So I kind of find that fascinating, but I'm glad that it ex- inspires people with that storyline. And I hope it continues to inspire. You know, one of the phrases, adapt or die might be a bit harsh, but that, that's kind of what the world is like now. The world's changing so quickly that businesses have to change their understanding of their data uh, faster and faster to, I don't, you know, some cases survive, but, you know, certainly to be more profitable or to be more relevant to your customers. And Ari, the reason you got pulled into that movie, because you were the real Moneyball guy, is... I assume very much based on the fact that, and here is a a very quick baseball lesson for all of those listeners who are not into baseball, that you let the analytics function, if I may call it that, you can tell us a little bit more about what that function actually was. At the Chicago Cubs, when they won the World Series in 2016, and that was the first time in 108 years that that team won the World Series. So there ever was a, a draw in winning titles that would be close to the record <laughs> and you were part of that with data and with analytics achieving that result and um, could you tell us about how you were using data at that time to become the real moneyball team yeah so first of all 108 years i believe is the biggest drought like lack of championship for any sport in the world if not you know let me know that's what i've been told and then 108 years, coincidentally, is the number of seams or like number of stitches in the baseball. So that's kind of a a cool symbolism there. And, you know, so this is 2016. I had started consulting with the Chicago Cubs back in 1995, like automating their scouting analytics, and then helped uh, their president, Andy McPhail, with, in addition to analytics, becoming a major league scout. So the two lenses in the movie, I've kind of sat in both. The analytic, like what can numbers tell us about a player's habits? But then what can a scout uh, and observing the player also tell you? And where do they complement each other? Where do they uh, contradict? So also had that role helping out with scouting. And then uh, the fun part, uh, you know, so that was starting in 95. And then the team got a new ownership, the uh, Ricketts family, around 2010. And so they made two hires, myself and then Theo Epstein, who, uh, who was kind of in the openings, portrayed in the opening scene of Moneyball. 
but helped recruit him to become the next president. So those were the two hires in the organization. You know, we, we had an open field where it was an owner whose family started TD Ameritrade, which is like a financial company. And it was kind of like you have an open realm to make recommendations. What data do you want to collect? What software do you want to implement? What insights do you want? What uh, type of questions you want to ask? So, and it was also at a time when like pitch tracking and tracking of what players are doing started getting introduced really in the late, like 2008, 9, 10. So it was like the perfect storm. You had the opportunity to shape something that you liked as well as new data coming in. So it it was a process to, uh, you know, fortunately you were in one of the big cities. So you had the opportunity to acquire good players trade for good players, get equipment to uh, help with their development, like high-speed cameras and so on. So really, you know, the goal was to foster a naturally curious environment and to try to avoid what's called groupthink, where the head comes up with an idea and then, uh, hey, I want this player, I want Jonas, and everyone else scrambles to come up with evidence of why the leader came up with the right idea. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of grew from there. And, and you know, the Cubs w- was a great success. Uh, I also helped scout some of the players. In fact, uh, Anthony Rizzo, I did the main analytics. He ended up being the player that caught the final out of the final game. And as soon as the ball touched the glove, they became world champions. So I was like the key uh, analyst to recommend him back when he was a teenager. Gave a strong recommendation saying, he would be a consistent all-star, which is a rare thing to do. I usually don't stick my neck out. But yeah, that, that's overall what the real life uh, you know, at a high level was like. And then I left the Cubs and joined one of my old friends, uh, Dan Duquette, who also was uh, part of the, the book, in the, I think in the movie, but certainly in the book, Moneyball. We worked together with the Montreal Expos, which was kind of the opposite. We had no money. We had the lowest payroll in baseball, but we ended up with the best record in baseball by finding completely undervalued high-risk players. So again, we, we, our entire 40-player payroll was equivalent to one or two Yankee players, and, and we still had the best record and made the playoffs. So we reunited with the Orioles. I was his assistant. And he was the general manager and had a lot of great experiences there making the playoffs three of her first six years. It's fascinating when you tell the story, how much of a difference it actually can make when you pick the right players, not out of what I assume normally is what humans pick up on, charisma, star factor, whatever that means, uh, things that they see with their eyes that are actually massive biases. And I would hazard the guess that uh, a lot of people listening to this podcast are not hiring for baseball players, but they are hiring for other individuals and we will have the same biases in that case. It's a little bit harder to measure who's going to be your next CEO or your next general manager of such and such, uh, of course, because you, you don't have metrics of how good they are in that sense. But it really highlights just how powerful analytics can be in an environment that is so competitive and where everything is in order for you to end at the top, someone else has to not end at the top. It's sort of a zero-sum game in, in a league table, in a yeah, playoffs or whatever, whatever you have, sports finals, right? There's a, for there to be a winner, there has to be a loser. So you, you have to be better than someone and it's very measurable. The, yeah, that's really fascinating. So Ari, uh, caught on to the, the gentleman you talked about early on that, that grabbed that last ball and you had picked him out of, the crowd of thousands uh, many, many years before that. You probably don't want to reveal your full strategy here on the show of how you pick the best players, but what are the sort of things that you look at and you, you can see in someone like that who is a teenager who is maybe 10 years away from that and not physically developed and or the mindset and all those things still not there, but you can see that they're, they're going to be that person. Uh, that's really fascinating. What are the variables and, and metrics that you pick out uh, to determine that th- this person is going to be that in the future with, with a high probability? 
Yeah, so great question. And that's kind of the key to like every industry is at the point that you're making a decision, like what variables or what criteria at that point kind of are indications for future success. Could be you're a marketing program. What market, you know, what price do you want to set something? It could be what's our demand forecasting for manufacturing some product on a store by store basis. But looking backwards in time, it's you know, the answer is right there. But at that moment, especially when you're dealing with a teenager, you have to fast forward. What will they be like when they're 30 years old and how might they perform? So, you know, at a high level, you, you started talking about biases. You want to do analytics that are as little biased as possible. So like one bias could be like if you've ever heard of auditions or you've ever done a job interview, the first person has an advantage. People come and they go, wow, Jonas was amazing. I'm not going to really select anyone else. He's our candidate or like the last person or second to last. And most of the people in between is just human nature. So there's recency bias. There's bias where if like a player or a person were to keep calling you, like persistence or confidence pays off, but that isn't necessarily evaluation. So there's a saying that you select players, you pay for players based on future performance, not in the past. So Anthony Rizzo was one famous one. Another was Hunter Pence, who was a minor leaguer, half the scouts. He's a skinny guy, not very athletic looking. So half the scouts said, believe me, he's amazing. We should recruit him. And the other half said, no way. He, he doesn't have the body of a player and he's not going to develop. So, of course, the owner looks at me and says, Ari, you're the deciding vote. And, you know, my answer sound like a lawyer or a real estate agent, but it was, it depends. Let me do the research and get back since this is such an important decision. And I spent like 40 hours in a week researching everything I could. So back to like your criteria and, you know, every player is a little bit different, but with like, for example, Hunter Pence and Anthony Rizzo, those two examples, it was, you know, when you're very young and you're successful, it's about how do you adjust as a player in baseball in cricket and other sports? It's so competitive that people are going to find your weakness and attack your weakness. And if you can't adjust as a human, you're not going to last very long unless you're like so incredibly skilled that your strength is overcoming any attack that they have. So I look at, for example, every time they face the same opponent, who is getting better, the opponent or those players? And how does that compare to their peers? So both of them were incredibly adaptable. They would adapt their swing based on you know learning. They would listen to their coaches to make adoptions. And then other players that I wouldn't recommend that weren't making adjustments Sometimes they would get called anyway, but after one or two years, they'd have success, but then just fail out of baseball altogether. So the, you know, th those are some things. But then in terms of data science, one of the magic and beauty of data science is you can try all different things. What color eyes does the player have? And artificial intelligence will probably say, you know what? The eye color has no bearing on how successful they are. Then you have a hunch hey, did they grow up in a sunny state or a northern state where it's cold a lot? And the data will reveal that overall, people that grow up in sunny states do better. And then you can try to understand, hey, that's since they had more access to practice all winter compared to others. So that's the beauty of data science is you put in as many factors as you can collect, features, variables, whatever you want to call it, and AI will help determine which factors are most indicative. So that's kind of what I, I would do with these players is put in as much information as I could, look to, to see what other players did throughout history, and then see at the point you're making that decision, they're 17 years old, what characteristics that you can collect are indications that they'll have success in the future. And then above and beyond that, you do have to look at the player as a human. Uh, one of my biggest mentors was a guy, Jerry Krause, who's most known for being Michael Jordan's boss and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman in the NBA. 
So he lived in Chicago. We went to hundreds upon hundreds of games together and dinners. And he would teach me a lot about how you project a future human ability based on what you see in the present, which is really, it's hard for me to speak being a scientist, but as much as I can learn, you know, there are some patterns that you could see if you adjust this thing in their delivery, they could be an even better player. So yeah, those are some of the techniques that I've used. And that would be something that could be universally applied outside sports as well, I assume, as in the sort of the ability to pull levers in human ability and adaptability, because some of the keywords I picked up on that you're talking about are the individual's ability to be molded over time is really key, which is another way of saying that they're adaptable to their environment and, and the stimulus that comes in. You also talked about the externalities that are actually not to do with the person themselves, but just these ancillary factors like where they live, whether they live near a, a good sports ground or a bad sports ground. We're all in love with these the stories of uh, the people who defied the odds with poor training facilities and they didn't have a real coach there. Their dad did it or what have you. Like uh, the Serena Williams, Venus Williams movie with Will Smith. That's another sports movie where they get trained in a local tennis court in Compton by him for, for years and years and years and years and years. And they do also get into a nice facility at some point, of course, and it really takes off. But all of these uh, ancillary factors is also fascinating. So with all that, Ari, two questions come to mind. Generally speaking, not just in sports, but generally speaking, what are sort of some key indicators of this human potential factor, the adaptability factor that, that someone can look for when they look for talent in any sort of branch of, of human ability? A big question. And secondly, how much you can put you can put a rough number on it if you if you're willing to, how much Where do you put on the individual versus all these externalities uh, typically in, in decision-making? Yeah, so yeah, great questions. And yeah, that does apply to every industry. So, you know, adaptability of people, human behavior, like when you look at retail and manufacturing or even marketing, people act differently when they're hungry. So pricing a product for people in the store is not always a math formula, or it could be generally applied to a math formula, but accelerate it when people seem to be hungry. Or like Band-Aids, uh, just in general, you're going to buy a Band-Aid uh, just you know, to stock in your house. But if your kid is, fell off a bike and is bleeding, you're going to pay two, three, four times as much money. So human nature is one big factor. And the other thing that, that makes it tricky is data science could be very good for coming up with like generalization. It's generally better if you're a taller pitcher, since you're going to get more torque and throw a pitch faster or be able to start at a high plane and throw downward. So there were teams when this information came out that told their scouts, like, don't scout anyone that's under five foot, 10 inches. But the problem with that is there are outliers. There are shorter players that, you know, like you mentioned, the, the Williams sisters, doesn't matter how tall or whatever uh, you have, what background they're from, they're outliers, they're great. But the first guideline is not to generalize that, you know, some metrics are better for some people than others. In baseball, there's some players that stand like this. I know it's a podcast, I don't know if people can see, but with their hands up raised, others with their hands down, others with their hands back. And so with there, it's like really a combination of characteristics. It's good if you can stand with your hand backward, if you have a quick bat speed. It's better if your muscles are quick, but not as strong. It might be better to start with your hand closer to the plate if you're really strong, but don't have as good speed. So you start to develop, in addition to models, what's called an expert system. So for it's kind of like a business logic. If this is the situation, you're this age, this height, then start doing this model. If you're in this age and height, do another model. And then you keep refining it. If you're left-handed, right-handed, if you have so much experience or not, uh, what type of position you have. And then by then, it's like less a math formula and more like a 
yeah, that expert system, it's uh, business rules that's more finely tuned. So those are some things. And then, you know, there is something to be said if you're selecting players to understand who they are as a person. The, the one thing that is really hard to do is I've talked to such a range of players. Some love analytics, some love analytics that's visual, some love analytics if it's like a word or phrase. Some love analytics if it's like raw numbers and others don't even like research. They don't even watch video of their opponent. They just go up and swing and they're still very successful. You know, it's kind of hard, but what, you know, what you could do is make a model based on comparative players. And then you can kind of say, this is the type of player. If you have 10,000 high schoolers, you could make a prediction and then you, you know, this is the type of player we believe they'll be. Here are the reasons for or against it based on the data. And then uh, here's like the risk. Here's the expected accuracy. We think Jonas is going to be an elite player with like a 50% chance. Ari's going to be an elite player with a 1% chance. And then that just helps drive your decisions. The other thing that's fascinating is like a newer trend. So you have metrics. How quickly did somebody run? How fast are they? swinging a bat or throwing a ball. But then you have scouts that are humans evaluating the player and writing in text a scouting report. And now AI could take the actual words, that's the subjective information that scouts have, and use that as a data source. It's called text analytics. So if enough scouts say this player is deceptive and the metrics show they can throw a pitch 98 miles an hour, that that combination is like the best uh, combination for success. And you wouldn't get that information if you don't have humans evaluating it using work. So I find that fascinating, you know, based on scouting reports, depending if you're high school, college, or below. But that is like one of the, what the scouts say tends to be one of the top three criteria to predict success, which is fascinating. So there we go. No one's getting replaced by AI yet, not scouts either. That's the usual fear that uh, all this comes in and we don't need humans anymore. We absolutely need them. That example there is really interesting because the way I think about that is you have content and you have context and the raw metrics, the ball flew at this speed, they hit it 80% of the time, they stood like this, et cetera, et cetera. That's factual. That is what happened. The context around that situation is what you're saying, is what the scout actually adds. And they can be biased, of course, and hopefully they're not too biased, but that's something you have to deal with as well, I assume. The context around that situation, what are the typical sort of important contextual additional observations that a person watching this, this scenario play out that they can add on top of the raw metrics? Yeah, and, and that, that's great. Putting things in context is great in every industry. So like in terms of marketing, sometimes you do a marketing campaign, but people are going to buy the product anyway. But you might incorrectly attribute the marketing campaign with the sales. They would buy it anyway or close the sale. And similarly, you know, in sports, sometimes like the context is everything. You know, an example is if the game is out of hand, like you're obviously losing or you're obviously winning, people play differently. Like they're not trying as hard as they're trying too hard. It's kind of like throwaway. They're just going through the motion. So you probably shouldn't evaluate the statistics from those scenarios. And so it's called high leverage. How does somebody perform if like the game is close and on the line? Are they able to still concentrate? If a player's made an error, do they bounce back and continue to do well, or do they continue to kind of hurt themselves? It's this whole book uh, called The Hot Hand. It's this whole concept, philosophical and physical and basketball, where if you have a hot hand, you make baskets. In that game, you continue to make really good shots. And some analysts say that that is a thing, and other analysts say it's not. And it all depends on the context of how you do the analytics. In reality, you know, the conclusion is it does exist. The human body could get tired and their arm could be worn down. But yeah, th those are some of the contexts. How high leverage is it? Sometimes 
you know, there's the scientific, you know, with light as a particle or a wave, and it depends how you observe it. Sometimes players know they're being watched by a scout. And so they perform differently. Like what you said, it could be showy. They could dive for a ball, even though they didn't have to, and they catch it and they pump their fists, knowing they're being watched by scouts. So yeah, you want to just be unbiased and see what are their skills compared to, you know, what a typical player would do in that situation. Jeez, Dad, not the car again. Oh, happens all the time with old Betsy. Have you checked out Carvana yet? They have thousands of cars for under $20,000. But do those thousands of cars have personality like old Betsy? Betsy's held together by tape. And there are raccoons living in the engine. It's a family car. Uh, there are flames on the hood? Ah, custom paint job. No, Dad, the car's on fire. How many cars did you say Carvana had? Visit Carvana.com to shop thousands of cars for under $20,000. We'll drive you happy at Carvana. Yeah, really, really interesting and fascinating. So Ari, I actually want to just take a step back a bit because we've gone to detail here, which is wonderful. And I think it would actually be helpful for listeners to get a bit of a, a history lesson because you've been in this industry for 34 years and you talked a little bit about the technological evolution that's enabled a lot of this stuff over time. Could you talk us through what types of analytics you could do in the beginning to now and sort of the technology that's come along and the data that's come along and the, the maturity of, of that space. Uh, because you see now so much data. When you're watching sports on TV, you see all this stuff getting shown to you, which shows you that a lot of stuff's getting measured. There's even more than that, of course. But also the proliferation now of almost every professional sports team having a, a head of analytics or data science or whatever they call it it's so common now so this is must really be something that's driving a competitive edge for a lot of teams could you tell us about that that evolution over the last three four decades yeah so it's remarkable i don't feel that old but been in it over a third of a century and yeah when i started in the 80s there's no internet people really didn't have emails it existed but most people didn't but the sports data was what you call box scores. It was basically what was printed in the newspaper. It's kind of a summary of what events each player did, like one line, a couple data points. So I would have to go to the library and look up things on microfilm and put it into a database I created to find information. So there was like within a game what happened. And then sometimes... It would be the sequence of how things happened that would help me explain the information better. So this is like the late 80s to early 90s. It was just event information, one row or one record per player per game. And that's kind of where things stood. I had worked for Oracle. I'd worked with the teams. So I would say the next progression was in the early 90s, where there were scouting reports that were all written on a piece of paper. and. If, uh, you know, at the end of the, every year, there'd be thousands of pieces of paper. And if a general manager wanted to say, who's the best shortstop in the minor leagues, they would have an intern look through thousands of records, pull out shortstops, and then order it by the scouting records. It would take a week or so. So right for making a database. So the scouting reports could be electronically entered. And then I made an interface for a non-technical person, like a general manager, to just say, shortstop, minor league, sort by this criteria. And the answer comes back in seconds. So that takes us through the 90s. And then, uh, you know, the next revolution was like in the late 90s, early 2000s, where volunteers started making game logs. So before you only had one record per game, how many hits did they get? How many runs did they get? And now a game log would be, what was the sequence of events? And then after that, you started getting, it's called a pitch log. For each event, there could be 5, 10, 20 pitches. And then the first true data revolution started in 2007, where this company called Sport Vision invented technology to use cameras and sensors in the stadium to record everything happening on the field. Sorry, question here. So until 2007, is this all manually collected as in the human is sitting there tapping in yep so many pitches and et cetera, et cetera. so many runs i mean you, you, you track that anyway as, as part of the keeping a score but this sort of extra detail 
Exactly. Extra detail. So each team would hire scouts to go to every game. So you'd have 20, 30 scouts at every game recording redundant information. Here's each pitch. Here's where the pitch was. Here's the speed of the pitch. Humans capturing that. And now in 2007, that was the first automation. So like in that movie Moneyball, scouts, some of them would say, wait a minute, it's my job to record every velocity of a pitch, every speed. You can't automate that. And so the, the bad scouts would resist, but the good scouts would love it. They said, this is great. This recording of velocity is kind of beneath me. I don't want to do that. I want to evaluate players based on their human aspect. That was the first thing. Now you have every pitch of every game, not just that, but things that humans couldn't record, like how quickly the pitch was spinning. A human can't detect that, but the uh, cameras can. So that was a huge revolution. I realized, you know, I only have a few years to have a huge advantage. Started this company, Scoutables, with Fred Clare and, and others, the general manager of the Dodgers at the time. And uh, yeah, we kind of helped revolutionize that whole analysis, finding habits in players that put teams that used it years ahead. And so this pitch tracking was about the same until uh, like five years later when they started recording similar things for hitters and for fielders. So around 2010, when I was with the Cubs, one of the big advantages was being able to position where the fielders were to anticipate like what's the probability of a ball being hit in this area is 20%, but another area it's 80%. So you're going to have your fielder stand where it's an 80% chance versus 20%. Did not cost any money. It was pure data. And we were using it and we estimated that it would save 80 to 90 runs per year, which it was about eight or nine games per year which is about 80 to $90 million of value per year, significant amount. That's like make the playoffs or not without costing anything else, without getting any other players. It's like Darwin Barney won what's called the gold glove of the year. I think he's Australian, by the way, but you know, for nothing else but having data help inform where to stand. Mm, fascinating. And then I would say, yeah, the, the final two phases was just a few years ago, baseball introduced new technology called Hawkeye, which if you're a global sports fan, that's being installed in the Premier League across Europe and, and in other sports. And that really measures everything going on in the field, including the limbs of each player. So if you're talking about football, soccer, what is their like dribble, is their footwork like? Are they using their head? How are they diving and striking? And that is only a few years old. So now we have this whole host of new data that's going to take a decade to fully interpret and understand. So that's where we are now, using AI and cameras to interpret like where limbs are on the field and how can you better make a, a performance, a faster pitch, faster throw, a faster kick. There's so much in this uh, that we can transfer to the business world as well. And one of the things I'm sitting here thinking, Ari, is if I may sort of go across a little bit to a more high-level philosophical comment. So in the data science literature at the moment, there's a lot of talk about data-centricity, data-centric AI and machine learning, which is basically saying that you have more opportunity in collecting better data than you have in trying to make the model, the algorithm, more accurate. And when I hear you talk about this, the evolution and revolution of this is really happening when you start collecting some really incredible, accurate, precise, but also very particular, very insightful types of data, like the spin of the ball and those sorts of things, how limbs move. It's a completely different metrification, if that's a word, of human behavior that just opens up the door to such a different fundamental understanding of how we work as individuals and how we fit into a larger group, which is actually quite complex. Humans aren't, we think we're smart at that stuff, but we're actually probably not wired to look at 10, 15 people times two running around uh, in one big, one big mix and, and picking out exactly what's going on. And your example of let's make $80 million by 
taking one step to the left is also fascinating because there, there are business examples of that in in almost every business. There's sort of hidden hidden value somewhere that you just don't know until you start measuring. So the data collection and the spending the money to collect the right data, basically, uh, which which a lot of organizations outside sports probably don't do, is really key to opening up all this stuff. That's my philosophical reflection on that. So you've talked a bit about what kind of data is collected and, and how it's used. You started talking here about this new set of data that we will take 10 years to really fully utilize. And where do you see sports analytics being in, say, 10 years? What are the things we'll be able to do and measure? And, and therefore, what are the the outcomes that that will drive? And I know uh, every sport's different and I'm sort of, it's a very generalized comment. So you feel free to answer it however you, you want with one sport, or many sports or, or whatever you choose. Yeah, there's so many different ways to look at it. One is traditional analytics was business intelligence who was looking at data that was largely like numerical and then like categorical, like a color is red, white, or blue. The price of your product is two Australian dollars or two fifty. But now with AI, you could do more unstructured data. So the text analysis, like scouting reports or injury information, or online like sentiment analysis, that's a new type of data. Using visual analytics to look at images or video. Uh, to look at time series for like demand forecasting, to look at geospatial to see like are there some geographies better than others or in sports, looking at the field as a geospatial unit, like how do formations of humans running after this ball made out of pigskin, uh, what is the strategy of that? So like the types of data are key. Another evolution is yeah, the data being collected are XYZ points, like of limbs and where a ball is. And that's kind of cold and clinical. So having humans part of the conversation to take these dots and put context and meaning around it, to say, if these dots are in this pattern, it means a player's leaning back or leaning forward. And then, so that's called feature engineering. A shape of dots could be translated to a new variable. Then you could take multiple variables and make a new variable, like an open formation, where the player is open to pass or very open to pass or close to pass or aggressive dribbling or defensive dribbling. And then you could take those and make new features like building blocks and make an entire play like a right striking, you know, tail goal attempt. And then you could just keep building upon that. In what context? When it's a tie game, when it's a, you're down by a point and you're in a desperation shot. So these are all like, for me, the fun creative part of what the next decade will be, which is feature engineering or making common sense ways to interpret the data based on raw data. Um, so, so those are some of the things. Then when I said like this Hawkeye, this tracking data will be helpful for 10 years. And that's some of the questions are very immediate. Uh, you can answer what are tendencies players do. That could be answered now. but since this data is only one or two years old, we don't know yet how a 17-year-old, like how quickly they run or with this data, like how their age will peak or not until we get 5, 10, 15 years of data. So it's almost like a life cycle from the moment you're being scouted, which is a teenager, until the moment that you retire, like 15 years. You need years of data to answer those types of questions, like how do people age do their what types of performance skills are retained and what get less and by what amount? And then you know the world tends to take different turns. So in baseball, that example of defensive positioning, when I started, less than two percent of all balls in play incorporated that moving the player. And in just a dozen years, now more than half of all balls in play incorporated. So the game's changed. And now you have to make new data science to adapt to the changing rules, the changing way the game is. In basketball, the game has totally changed from two-point shots, where you're right next to the basket, to three-point shots. So these models are going to have to change again and again. The rules are going to change. And then who knows, there might be more types of data that could be collected that we're not even thinking about yet. 
Yeah, the two to three point shot element of basketball was actually, I think I've read about that somewhere. That was a data analysis, data science sort of led outcome that there is some probabilistic relationship between taking more three shots and versus two is getting the game outcome is more likely to be in your favor if you have more of those with the right shooters of course is that right 100 percent, and you know it's all within context some players like Shaquille O'Neal his best strategy is stand under the basket pass it to him and he just slams it in but for most players yeah that is the case so the whole game has changed to like either a three-point shot game or they run and, and charge the net and do a layup right under the net. And so that totally changed the way players perform in high school and college, knowing that they have to improve their three-point shot. And now there's even talk of possibly making an extra layer. So there's now a four-point shot range. It, it hasn't happened yet, but that's how much the game has changed that they may even change the rules so dramatically like that. Wow. Yeah, that is fascinating because the selection criteria becomes different and a lot of variables that might have mattered in the past, I can imagine, will become less important. I'm here picking at something that I don't know at all is a driver, but I would imagine it is. Someone like Shaquille O'Neal, very tall guy, even for basketball. So if he's close to the basket, then he can sort of put it in. It, it probably matters a lot more than the guy who's a little bit shorter, but can get it in from far away. So that's the height advantage becomes very different in that scenario, as an example. Fascinating, Ari, all this stuff. There is so much stuff here. We could, we could keep going on different sports and different lenses to all this. And it is fascinating uh, in part because it, it, it is measuring humans and their ability, but also because it is actually so much more advanced than almost any other field of analytics because of this proliferation of high-quality data. It's in my opinion, at least, that that's the reason, in part. There's also lots of money involved in gaining that extra extra inch of performance uh, that makes all the difference. Whether you win by 10 points or one point, uh, the outcome's the same, in, in essence. So that the competitive edge is really important. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com AI. Now back to the show. And on that, I'm interested in your viewpoint on what can the business world learn from the sports world in terms of using analytics data science to get a competitive edge? Well, yeah, there's so many things that could be learned to operate better, to serve customers better, and then ultimately to get a competitive edge. And at the highest level, it's cultural. Like a lot of companies have been around 100 years Kind of like in Moneyball, everyone's like, we've been doing it this way forever. Why change? And a lot of businesses have that mentality. And I'm not advocating change just since it's cool and, and different to use AI. Like you should really only change if the new way is better than what you're doing in the past. So just want to make that clear. But AI can help you determine, you know, here's an insight. If you do AI with transparency, you could explain, here's a recommendation. Stop selling your product in Walmart. And if you tell that to a retailer or a manufacturer, they may say, I'm not going to change my strategy just since a model told me. But if there's transparency to say, here's the 10 reasons why we recommend it, you know, the smaller shop has the same volume for more profit and it's in the general same neighborhood, then they might make the switch and make more profit. Similar in baseball or sports, if a model says we recommend signing Michael Jordan you know, or, or like another player, the general manager won't just take it and sign the player. They'll ask what are the reasons for or against it. So transparency and being able to interpret and understand what data science models are really uh, translates to every single industry. I know myself, you know, I'm, I'm very data intensive, but even so, I'm not going to change what I'm doing unless there's like some good evidence, like in a model. Like if a model tells me to change the price of data robot software, 
probably not going to unless I could see the data to back it up. So transparency is a good one, understanding where humans and automation uh, augment or help each other out. So what can human evaluation tell you versus uh, data evaluation and how do they collaborate together? So probably like the best explanation is when you make a data science initiative is to have the data scientists and the business people constantly talk and communicate. People that know the data and people that know the business combined with the data scientists who can kind of help the magic, help make it happen or become a reality. So, you know, like in that retail example, if the model says stop selling in Walmart, but the business people say, wait a minute, we have a five-year contract with Walmart. We can't stop selling there. That's something that may not be in the model. Another example in sports, I once had somebody work for me that recommended the team sign a player. And it turned out that that player was injured. They broke their leg. They were out for a year. And luckily I caught it since if you recommend to sign a player with a broken leg, that's not the best recommendation. And the data scientists just didn't think to check, like add injury information as part of the model. And so that, you know, things like that, you really need to have that collaboration of business people, data people, and data scientists. There's probably a hundred other points from uh, sports world that translate to business. You know, there's the technical, there's the other question is like analysis by paralysis and that there's the saying that no model is perfect, but some are more useful than others or better than others. So at some point you have to decide this model is good enough. It's 90% accurate. I'm just going to run with it. Or other cases, you know, you're launching a spaceship. It has to be close to 100% accurate. Will the spaceship get into orbit or not? So at some point, you also have to decide when is it good enough. And then I guess the final advice for now we can keep going is to understand what's called data drift. And that in the real world, things are changing. The interest rates are fluctuating. Prices of commodities and oil and gas are changing. Supply chains being disrupted. The economy of what people could spend are changing. So you want to constantly monitor your data science models and recalibrate them when the underlying data, the world's changed enough. And that, that's one thing I learned with sports as well is you could have a great model, but then a month later or a year later, players change their behavior. The market changes. There might be more left-handed pitchers available than last year. So they, the price of them might come down. So the bottom line is be able to detect where's your data drifting or changing? How's that affecting your data science model? And how can you make a repeatable process to like recalibrate or remodel your algorithms? There is a lot for the business world to learn here. And they're all the same problems in a different version, really. And, and I think the, what I take away, Ari, is two things that really are often showstoppers for a lot of businesses that the sports world has overcome in many cases, which is quality of data. I already talked about that at length, but also the culture around experimentation and wanting to, to use these insights and trusting them. That is one of the biggest challenges that many businesses have, this cultural change around this stuff being actually a silver bullet in many cases and, and being able and willing to, to play around with that and experiment um, and see, see how it works. Are we almost at the end? I've got three questions left for you. Two are short, one's as long as you want to make the answer. Because if you are a follower of Ari on LinkedIn, which I am, you will see that he has been traveling the world with the Data Robot team looking at almost every Formula One race this year. Because you and the Data Robot team have been doing some pretty interesting things in that space, helping Formula One teams, the one in particular, become better. Uh, again, competitive edge. Could you sort of high level talk about what you're doing in that space and maybe what, what sort of results that's yielded? Yeah, absolutely. So working with McLaren, which is one of the like better like respected Formula One teams, been doing that almost a year now. It's been incredibly exciting getting to travel around the world. We're both the sponsor of McLaren. So, you know, seeing our logo on the car is amazing. You know, being part of some of their social media where they have 10 million Instagram followers and 
10 million Twitter followers and half a million LinkedIn is great. But the other fun thing is that they leverage Data Robot, and I'm one of the the folks you know helping them uh, with you know for example race strategy. When do you change your tires and pit, which is like the key point to the race? What is the weather going to be like? The surface temperature of the track, the air temperature of the track to like a five minute increment, and you know as long as you're better than what the weather station is, and, and we we have been. That gives better insights. So I'll quote Ed Green, who I, I don't like to come up with my own metrics. I'd rather have them, but said like in a recent race, it helped the team stay out on the track three additional laps on the same tires, which is a huge difference. And they ended up you know, getting what you call points, which helped them tremendously. So being better able to predict things like that in the race strategy has been tremendous. I've loved, like in Silverstone in England the other week, before the race, getting into their motor trailer and going to their technology center, which is this huge futuristic building in Woking, England, where they have dozens of people every race day, like NASA spaceships, like they're in this control room, you know, one person for just the front left tire, another for like the rear aerodynamics. They have wind tunnels to use AI to help decide what parts should be tested in the wind tunnel. You have 80,000 car parts and you can only test a few per day. So what is objects you want to test to give the most likely improvement in aerodynamics? Looking at past information, like the prior race and seeing did the car perform as you had hoped or not? Why or why not? And you only have a few days to make tweaks to the car before you're racing again. So, so data intensive where milliseconds count, millions of simulations, tens of thousands of car parts, 300 sensors a thousand times a second. So it's so data intensive. It's so high visible. You have um, just from that TV show, Drive to Survive on Netflix, they gained 73 million fans over the last couple of years. So high stakes, high visibility and with that great people to work with at McLaren. Very fascinating. And in that sport, literally every second counts. So any millisecond you can gain is a, is a big difference, isn't it? Yeah. I do also recommend that everyone watches that Drive to Survive. It's a fascinating behind the scenes of Formula One, which is gives, shows some, some of this complexity that's being put together. Ari, last two questions for you. So the first one is one that I always ask people on the show, which is uh, to pay it forward. I want to know from you, who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? Ooh, that, that's a great question. And by the way, I, to answer that, I want to congratulate you on all the great guests that you've had before. So you know, folks I know from Bill Inman, Tom Davenport, Ravi Jain, Kate Strachini, uh, Dr. Kirk Bourne, who also went to Caltech, but you know some folks I didn't see on there. Number one, yeah, I would say Michael Wimmer is an up and coming. He's super young. I don't know if he's like thirteen or fourteen, but like super creative. Has helped NASA. Big Formula One fan, but he is like a child prodigy. That's the next generation. I always want to hear from the next generation. Hannah Fry out in London. She's done like tech talk of like the mathematics of love, kind of a fascinating, popular data person, personality. Michael Kanan, who wrote this book, T-AI, which is kind of a futuristic, like, what is the end of civilization? Are we going to survive as humans with, uh, you know, the clocks ticking on the negative and positive? And then probably Ikechi Okovankwo, who is with Mindshare. I just Recently spoke with him, but it's kind of the similar subjects, but more on marketing analytics of similar subject of how humans behave to advertisements, how they resonate to personalities and hyper-customized marketing. So probably, you know, those four would be good to start with. Fantastic recommendations. And everyone on that list will be getting an email from me very shortly. Thank you for that, Ari. Lastly, where can people find out more about you and get a hold of your content? Sure. So from the content, uh, I am a co-host of what's called More Intelligent Tomorrow podcast. 
So that's moreintelligent.ai is the website. It's uh, tangentially related with Data Robot. It has like a lot of thought pieces, but you know, good podcast as well to complement leaders of analytics. I also love connecting through LinkedIn. So like what Jonas was saying, if you want to follow along, especially World Travels and, and McLaren, and then I have all sorts of weird insights that pop into my brain. So if you want to follow along what my line of thinking is on LinkedIn, you know, A-R-I is how you spell my first name and K-A-P-L-A-N is how you spell my last name. That, that's a great way to uh, follow me there or connect and message me. Lo- love connecting with people too. Listeners, do take up that opportunity because uh, you won't regret it. Ari is a very fascinating person with lots going on. Ari Kaplan, thank you so much for being on Leaders of Analytics today. Really appreciate you sharing the knowledge with the world and our audience here and everything you've done for the Analytics community over the years. There's much more than we've covered in this show, actually, that we haven't even scratched the surface of that you've contributed. And thank you for also making sports more interesting over the last 34 years. All the best and enjoy the rest of your fascinating career in sports analytics. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you to the audience for listening and hope I can enjoy the wonderful cultural and and food scene in Melbourne and see you in person again. 